Well, we are continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. Now, if you read through the whole book, you can break down Exodus into three main parts. First, we have the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery in chapters 1 to 14. Next, we have Israel's wandering through the wilderness and, and God giving his people the law from chapters 15 to 24. The third and final part of the book of Exodus is the story of the tabernacle, where God commands Israel to build a sanctuary for the sake of worship. And that's found in chapters 25 to 40. And that's where we are beginning today. We're entering in, after the Mosaic Covenant, the giving of the law, we're entering into this third part uh, where God is instructing Israel to build a tabernacle for the sake of worship. One can summarize the book of Exodus in this way. The whole book of Exodus can be summarized as God delivering his people so that he may rule and dwell among them. God delivers Israel out of slavery so that he can rule over them as king and dwell among them as their God. My wife and I, uh, we've been married for six years now, and, and I've shared this before from the pulpit. It took us several years for us to have our first child together. And I know that there are many couples here at All Nations who can relate to our story. The journey was difficult. Uh, it was filled with a lot of heartache and a lot of prayer. Uh, two years ago, we were able to purchase a small condo in Pasadena. Keyword, small condo in Pasadena. So that was two years ago. And then last year, by God's grace, our son Seth came into our lives. And kind of a funny story. When our son was born, my mom came from Atlanta to visit. And she told me, Michael, I just knew in my heart that as soon as you bought a place, you were going to have a child. Right? As soon as you guys closed escrow, right, uh, you're going to have a child. And, and it was just one of those moments where uh, I looked at my mom and I just nod and I smile at, uh, at my mother's intuition. Uh, and I was also thinking, man, you have a lot of superstition. Um, now, I promise, right, uh, there's no real correlation between home ownership and having children. There, there is no real uh, correlation between those two things. But I thought of this as I prepared for today's message. Because in the story of the tabernacle, God is commanding Israel to build a place for him. A home for him so that he can dwell in their midst. Right? And so preparation precedes communion. Okay, preparation precedes communion. God is telling them, build me a sanctuary, build me a house, build me a place so that I might dwell among you, that I would be with you. The tabernacle was a mobile sanctuary, a tent that Israel would use to worship God from their time in the wilderness all the way up to King Solomon. And God's heart is that he doesn't want Israel just to have occasional one-off encounters with him. Whether it's the burning bush, the ten plagues, or the parting of the Red Sea. Those were miraculous. Those were special, right? But he wants more than just these occasional, supernatural, one-off moments with his people. God wants to be constant. He wants to be present in the lives of his people. One theologian writes that with the tabernacle, we move from the occasional appearance of God to his ongoing presence with his people. Friends, when you think about your relationship with God, right, your history, your journey with God, 
Is it littered with occasional moments with him? Or do you experience ongoing presence, ongoing communion, ongoing fellowship with God? Do you know what it means to walk in the Spirit? Do you know what it means to regularly, faithfully abide in Jesus Christ? Or is your Christian life, yeah, like five years ago, I went on a mission trip. Two years ago, there was this really good retreat. You know, uh, last year, I attended this nice conference, and I was really blessed then. But that's pretty much the summary of my Christian life. A couple of little peaks, a couple of occasional moments. And I want to tell you this, God wants more for you. He wants you to feast upon his daily bread. He wants you to experience what it means to walk with him, to live life with him, to abide with him. Like any meaningful relationship we have, it's not enough just to have one great meal, one great conversation or one great moment with another person. We need ongoing and regular connection with them for that relationship to be truly life-giving, okay? to be truly life-giving. I was uh, presiding a wedding yesterday. Okay? It is not enough for that couple to have an awesome wedding day and think that that is going to carry them over for the next year, five, ten, for the rest of their marriage. That's not enough. They need to have ongoing intimacy and communion and connection with each other to have a beautiful, healthy, flourishing marriage. This is what God desires for his people. Ongoing presence, ongoing relationship. In today's sermon, I'm going to be giving an overview of the tabernacle from Exodus chapters 25 to 40. And even though I'm going to be taking broad strokes, I hope to get us to the heart of the tabernacle. And to organize the message, we're going to look at three things. Three things. First, we're going to look at the contributions for the tabernacle. Second, the elements of the tabernacle. And finally, the meaning of the tabernacle. So the contributions, the elements, and the meaning of the tabernacle. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. I'll be reading from the ESV, and the words are also going to go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, And for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Amen. The word of the Lord. Last week, I reminded us that God doesn't just call us to worship him. He instructs us. On how to do it. And here we see that same principle, that same pattern for the tabernacle. God doesn't just call Israel to build him a sanctuary. He doesn't just call Israel to build him a tent and then to go for it. In verse 9, we see that God gives the exact instructions. That God gives the blueprints on how to make his sanctuary. 
And the people of Israel have an important role to play. Not in the design of the tabernacle, not in the ideation of the tabernacle, but in the construction of the tabernacle. They are called to contribute towards it. It's the first building project in the Bible, believe it or not. I know a lot of times at church, uh, when there's a new building, a new campaign, we're like, oh my gosh, that's so stressful. You're going to ask for more money. We're going to have all these special offerings. And so we can kind of like bemoan building projects, but we can always say it's biblical. It's biblical. It happened in the tabernacle and, uh, you know, it happens today. Not that we're doing a building project anytime soon. But it's the first building project in the Bible. And God's people are called to give their very best. To make offerings of gold, silver, and bronze. To contribute fine yarns, linens, and animal skins. To provide wood, spices, oil, and precious stones. And here we need to pause and ask, where would Israel come up with these things? Where would Israel come up with gold, silver, and bronze, and onyx, and all their precious stones? The Israelites were nomads. They were refugees who had escaped from Egypt in haste. These were former slaves without much to their name. It's not like they were mining gold and silver in the wilderness. It's not like they had farms of olives where they could harvest and press it into oil. It's not like they had forests of their own where they can chop down wood and trees. These were nomads and former slaves. Where would they get these materials? There's only one possible answer to this question. And it is that these precious materials were given to Israel by the Egyptians before they left. They received them. From the Egyptians before they left. In Exodus chapter 12 verse 35 to 36 we read. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians before they crossed the Red Sea. Before they departed from Egypt, God allowed Israel to plunder the Egyptians. Tremper Longman, uh, Old Testament scholar, he writes this. Israel did not earn these materials by their hard labor or through military means. God moved the hearts of the Egyptians to simply hand over the goods. God not only gave the plans for the tabernacle, in a very real sense, he also provided the materials to build it. God not only instructed, he not only commanded, God provided. And here we see in our passage an important principle of stewardship. Important principle for biblical stewardship. All that we have comes from God's hands. Everything that we have comes from God's hands. And all that he requires from us, God already provides in full. Okay, he already provides in full. Now, this is easy to say, okay? Most Christians that I know are quick to say, oh, everything's from the Lord. Everything is from God's blessing and by his hand. Every good and perfect gift, right? It's easy to say, hard to actually believe and live out. And this is because our modern worldview convinces us that we earn everything that we have. That we earn everything that we have. It's not a gift. We don't receive it. We actually earn it. And we have the paychecks. We have the pay stubs to show, right? 
Look at which days I worked, how many hours. This is my wage per hour. Michael, what are you talking about? This is not a gift. This is sweat equity, right? From my time and my sacrifice. And so in our culture, we think, man, because we work hard, because we sacrifice, because we graduate from programs and we achieve, we then think we deserve it all. And because we see ourselves as entitled earners, we then think we are owners. Okay? If we believe we earn everything that we have, then the next natural progression is you earn it, then you own it. You earn it, and then you own it. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip to Haiti, just after the tsunami had devastated that country. And as our hearts were broken by the great poverty in that nation, the missionary we were serving under soberly asked us one evening, as we were debriefing, sharing, and praying for Haiti, he asked us one evening, what did you all do so well that you were born in the United States? What did you do? To have the opportunities that you have, to have the privileges, to receive all of the freedoms that you have as as American citizens. What did you do so well and what did the Haitians do so poorly that you are where you are and they are where they are? And the answer is nothing. I was born in the U.S. I was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Many of us were born into American citizenship. If you weren't born here, you were brought here by your parents making that leap of faith, by your parents making that sacrifice. You see, everything that we have in life, it's a gift from God. And brothers and sisters, we're not owners. We're actually stewards. We are stewards. It's not that we have earned everything, but it's that God has provided for us everything. And this is absolutely true for Israel. Absolutely true for Israel. And even though God was entitled to all of their plunder, okay, Israel didn't fight for the gold. They didn't negotiate or labor for the gold and silver they received from the Egyptians. God graciously moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give this to them. God was entitled to all of it. He doesn't demand it all. And what he actually does in the building of the tabernacle is he gives his people the opportunity to contribute freely. This is known as the free will offering. And God said, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. For those who want to, those who desire, those who are going to be cheerful, generous givers, right? they can make a contribution. This is what God wanted. He wanted his people to make offerings and sacrifices not out of obligation or compulsion, but cheerfully and joyfully. God wanted his people to see his worth and then sacrifice freely. And what's beautiful about the story of the tabernacle is that Israel actually obeyed. I know so many times we read in the Old Testament, when we think about the Israelites in the Old Testament, we think, you guys are bad, faithless rebels. We think that there's a counterexample to everything, but in this case, Israel obeys. They obey beautifully. In chapter 36, where the construction of the tabernacle begins, we're told that the Israelites kept bringing free will offerings every morning 
to the point where the craftsmen, the builders of the tabernacle told Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Right? The people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. And Moses had to command Israel. Look at verse 6. Moses had to make this decree to Israel. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Just imagine that. People were giving so freely, so regularly, so generously that Moses said, Stop giving. Keep your gold. Keep your oil. Keep your incense. We have more than enough. More than enough. We can do all of the work the Lord has given us and more. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of biblical generosity. This is a picture of biblical stewardship. And I want to challenge you to really imagine what it was like for the Israelites to practice this. Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their place. What would it be like to give your gold to God when you don't even have a home? When you don't really have a job? When you don't have any land? You are a nomad living in the wilderness You only have a handful of precious possessions. Most of us would say, I need these for the future. I need these for my security. I need these for my family. How am I going to give these things to the Lord? Right? I need to build my house before I build God's house. If anyone had reason to hold on to their possessions, it was the Israelites. Yet they gave to the point where they had to be restrained. These nomads gave to the point where they had to be restrained. I I pray, church, that we would have this kind of heart and attitude when we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. I hope that when we give, that we would do more than just kind of be responsible Christians, be good members, and kind of check off that week or that month's to-do list as Christians. I hope that when we give, we would see that we are contributing to God's work. That we would see the dignity of tithing, the dignity of offering. We would see that that through these tithes, through these contributions, we are providing for this house of worship. We are participating in discipling all nations. We are supporting pastors, missionaries, church workers. We are resourcing the the, the outreach to our community in love and good works. And we would also remember that giving is not the responsibility of just a privileged few. Moses didn't say, hey, to those who got the most gold from the Egyptians, give. To those who got the most goat and ram skins from the Egyptians, you guys have abundance, so share. No, it's not just to the privileged few. It is an opportunity that God gives us all as members of the body of Christ. And as we practice biblical stewardship, may we too be able to say, as a church, the people bring much more than enough for the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Friends, do you believe in the vision and mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations and all generations 
by the power of the gospel? Do you believe that God has put us on mission here locally on this campus, to our community, to the city of L.A. and to the ends of the earth? And if you do, and if you do, I hope that that our giving, that our contributions would reflect the worth of the Lord's ministry, the Lord's call in our lives. There's so much for us to do. And I hope that we would keep that, the mission and the ministry of God, front and center as we practice biblical stewardship and generosity. Let's move to our next point, the elements of the tabernacle. Elements of the tabernacle. Verse 8 of our passage tells us the entire purpose of the tabernacle. God declares, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Church, every part of the tabernacle is a reminder to Israel that God is holy and yet makes a way to dwell among his people. God is holy and transcendent, right? And yet he makes a way to dwell among his people. After the invitation is given for contributions, we then have God's detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. God gives the dimensions, the materials, the furnishings. All of these things are very detailed, right? In how to construct the tabernacle, he begins from the inside out. He begins from the most sacred and holy elements of the sanctuary outward to the ordinary. The materials as well move from gold outward to silver and finally to bronze. The tabernacle symbolized heaven coming down to earth. Heaven is where God is. So when God came to live among his people, he brought heaven down with him. The point is not to suggest that we can box God in, in the Holy of Holies, and keep him inside a tent. Rather, it's that through the tabernacle, through this tent of meeting, God is present with his people. Through the tabernacle, God is reigning over his people. I don't have time to go through all the details, but I do want to show you one artist's rendering of the tabernacle on the screen. I'm pretty sure that's not what it looked like, but that was like the best image I could find on, on a Google image search, right? And, but that's, that's what the tabernacle may have looked like. Um, the tabernacle was to stand at the center of Israel's camp, surrounded by the tr- 12 tribes of Israel. And in this way, God's tent was like the tent of any ancient monarch. When the ancient kings would go to war, they would set up tents. They would set up camps. And in the center of their war camp right, would be the king's tent. Would be the king's tent. And Israel, by establishing their camp in this manner with the tabernacle at the uh, center, was reminded that Yahweh was their king. It wasn't Moses' tent that was at the middle. It wasn't Aaron's tent that was at the middle. It was Yahweh's tent, the tabernacle that was at the middle of their camp. The total footprint of the outer court uh, was 100 feet by 75 feet. And what's kind of cool is that's pretty much the dimensions of this room. 100 feet by 75 feet. And that would make the outer court. There's one entrance of the tabernacle. And it's facing east. And once you enter in the outer court, you would then face, you would face the actual tent known as the tabernacle. And so let's go to the next slide. And so that's the overall picture. This is the bird's eye view of the tabernacle. 
And so if you come in from the outside, and the one thing about this picture is it's supposed to be facing east, right? But from your perspective, it looks like it's facing west. Just a little bit of mercy and charity. This was also the best picture I could find uh, on the internet. Um, And so it's facing east. And when someone would come in, when a Jew would enter through the gate into the outer court, the first thing you would see is the altar of burnt offering, where you would bring your sacrifices to be made to God. And so every person who entered the outer court was reminded immediately, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. And on this altar of burnt offering, God is not casting you out. God is actually atoning for your sins. He is saving you from your sins through the death of another, through the sacrifice of another. I love that our church campus kind of has a similar setup. When you drive in off a foothill and come in through our driveway, what's the first thing you see on our building, on our campus? And it's the cross. It's the cross. And that cross reminds us of the same thing. The whole reason why we can enter into the sanctuary of God. The whole reason why we can commune with God and meet with him is because of the cross. It's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are atoned for. And we can be the sons and daughters of God. Next, after the altar of burnt offering, we have the bronze basin. And this was a large washing bowl where the priests would purify themselves before entering into the holy place. One more campus reference. Did you know there's a big old water fountain behind the cross? Right? So maybe that water fountain is like our version of the, the purification and the, the, the bronze basin. Right? And the bronze basin reminded Israel right, that God purifies sinners. The altar reminds Israel that God saves sinners. The water reminds them that God purifies sinners. And even the priests, the Levites who dedicated their entire lives to the worship of God, these holy men needed purification. Then there's the actual tent of the tabernacle. The tent was 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. And it just happens to be that this stage is about 15 by 45. And so imagine the the tent Of the tabernacle, the actual tabernacle has about these dimensions. And it was consisting of two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place was 15 by 30 and the holy of holies was a square, 15 by 15. And only the priests could enter into the holy place. So all of the Jews, they could enter into the outer courts, see the burnt sacrifice, watch the priests wash and gather there, but they could go no further. Only the priests could enter into the holy place. And in that place, there was the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The golden lampstand reminded Israel that God was their light and that God was holy. The table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, and it reminded Israel that each tribe had a seat at God's table. All of the tribes of Israel were invited to the banqueting table of God. And that table of showbread also reminded Israel that God was their provider. As they journeyed through the wilderness, God provided manna from heaven every morning. And at the altar of incense, Israel was reminded that God is a God who hears their prayers. That God hears their cries and receives their worship 
as a fragrant offering, as the incense was lit and the aroma filled the tent and the smoke ascended to God, it was a reminder, God hears your prayers. God receives your worship as your God. And then there was a thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was a 10-layer curtain, and it was four inches thick, and it was embroidered with a cherubim. A cherubim was a warrior angel, right? So this warrior angel and this thick, dense curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And what that did, that cherubim pointed back to the Garden of Eden, where where after Adam and Eve sinned, and after they were expelled from the garden, do you remember what God did? after they were cast out from the garden so that they would not be able to enter in the garden again and eat from the tree of life, God put a flaming sword and a cherubim at the gate of the garden of Eden so they would never be able to get back in to experience the shalom and the presence of God. But what a powerful message that this cherubim in front of the Holy of Holies, conveys to us. That although the cherubim at Eden blocked Adam and Eve forever from re-entering the garden, God, through the tabernacle, was making a way for Israel to enter into his holy presence. Do you see that? At Eden, no one else comes in. But here in the tabernacle, Israel can be accepted through a mediator. And so on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel, would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of Israel. And when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, he would encounter one thing, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest made of acacia wood and and, and overlaid with gold. And inside this chest, there were the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and a bowl of manna from the wilderness. And on top of this chest, there was a lid that had two more cherubim, two more angels on top of it. And these angels were facing one another, bowed down in holy reverence before God, and their wings were extended. And so they were in this shape, and that would make a seat, a throne called the mercy seat. And it was upon this throne where God would sit as a reminder that God was the king, the ruler, the one who was reigning over his people. And on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in with a bowl of blood from the sacrifice that had been made and sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat for the atoning of Israel's sins. That's the whole function of the tabernacle. Reminding Israel of their sin. Reminding Israel of their uncleanness. And yet at the same time powerfully proclaiming that God saves. That God purifies. That God provides and God accepts. Now what is the ultimate significance though of the tabernacle? Because it's beautiful. It's a a beautiful construction. It's a beautiful design. There's beautiful imagery. But even as we read this, there's an inherent tension with the tabernacle. Did you sense it? Did you sense the limited access that the Israelites have with the presence of God? Just as Israel was prohibited from going up Mount Sinai to meet the Lord, 
Most of Israel wasn't allowed to enter into the holy place. 11 out of 12 tribes not allowed into the holy place. And just as the 70 elders weren't allowed to follow Moses up Mount Sinai to meet with God, the priests couldn't follow the high priest into the holy of holies. They could only get into the holy place. There's limited access. There are still so many barriers in the tabernacle, and that should create in us a tension. We should almost grieve. We should almost grieve the limited access we see. Several years ago, I took some church members to a Christian concert at the uh, Nokia Theater. If you've ever been, that's the, that's the concert or the theater hall next to the Staples Center. Really cool venue. Really cool venue. And people were really excited to see this band. And I was responsible for buying the tickets. Well, our ministry was on a limited budget. So I had to buy the cheap seats. Right? I had to buy the cheap seats. And I didn't realize how cheap they were. When we got to the theater, our seats were upper deck, upper balcony, last row. Our backs were literally against the wall. I've never had such bad seats at a concert in my entire life. No one said anything because they were too polite. Except my wife. My wife was like, why would you buy these seats? And I was like, I'm sorry. And I was like, they're the last ones left. Right. The only ones we could afford. So nobody said anything. But I knew that people were annoyed. They were kind of annoyed. The sound was horrible. The band, we were so far back, they like looked like ants. Right? You couldn't even, there's no point in looking at the stage. We just watched the screen. And then I was like, oh my God, we could have just done this at home. Right? And the whole evening was an entire bust. Right, All build up, complete bust. Afterwards, we saw some people we knew who were at the same concert. They weren't sitting with us. They were in the orchestra pit. Right, That's front row. That's the splash zone. That's where people like jump around and, and have a great time. And we saw them, and they were beaming. Right, They were beaming, smiling from ear to ear, telling us how awesome the event was and how they were so moved by the music. How they were so blessed by the time of worship. And I was just thinking, were we at the same show? Right? It was crazy to think that we could be in the same room, watching the same show, listening to the same music, but have two completely different experiences. All because of proximity. All because of nearness or the lack thereof. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. God wants you closer. God wants you closer. There are some of you here today who feel very distant from God. You feel very distant from God. You don't know what it's like to be in his presence. You don't know what it's like to to hear his word and receive his kindness, for his face to shine upon you, for his peace to rest upon your heart your soul. You come to church, but you are that person in the last row of the balcony. And you're more of an observer than a worshiper. You see everybody else enjoying. You see everyone else being blessed. And yet God feels so far for you. This morning, I want to tell you, God wants you closer. He wants you to draw near. And the good news is that God knows that you can't on your own. He knows that because of your sin, 
because of your inability, you and I can't draw closer to God on our own. And this is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. This is why James writes, draw close to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Why can James give that command? Because Jesus has already drawn near to us. In Christ, God has drawn even closer to humanity than through the tabernacle of Moses. Imagine being a high priest and it's four inches. Sorry, not a high priest, an other priest. And being four inches away from the holy of holies. And yet you feel that barrier. You feel that divide. God is making himself even closer than that. Closer than the four-inch curtain. In the introduction of John's gospel, he writes this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of only, uh, as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John here is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That the son of God. That the second person of the trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. In our English translations, they say dwelt. But in the Greek, as it references the Hebrew, the better translation is actually the verbal form of tabernacle. To tabernacle among us. This is what John was saying. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus, in his incarnation, pitched his tent in our world alongside humanity. He became one of us so that God can draw near, so that we can know him full of grace and truth. If we have seen him, we have seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the true and greater tabernacle. And because Jesus is the true tabernacle, we have confidence to draw near to God. Think about every element that I described in the tabernacle. Every element that reminds us of God's holiness. Every every element that reminds us of our own sin. Well, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those elements. He is the lamb of God that is offered on the burnt offering, burnt altar in our place. It is Jesus' blood that purifies us from all of our sin, just as the water in the bronze basin did for the priests. Jesus is the bread of life, and he invites us to his table. He invites us to his banqueting table, and there is a seat for you. Jesus is the light of the world. And it is in his name that we pray. It is in his name that we worship. And because of the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, our prayers, our songs rise up as incense to the Lord and they are received by our Father in heaven. It's not because you and I pray hard. It's not because you and I sing well. It's because of the name of Jesus that he receives our prayers and our offering. Jesus is the door that allows us entrance into the holy place of God. And finally, it is Jesus who sits on the throne of the mercy seat as the resurrected king reigning over us. Jesus is the true and greater tabernacle. 
and to make this even stronger and more evident than John chapter 1:14 when Jesus died on the cross we are told that the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple, it was torn from top to bottom. That curtain that stood 15 feet above ground, that curtain that was four inches thick, it was torn in two as a testimony that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, sinners can enter into the holy of holies, into the holy dwelling place of God. This was a miracle. This was a miracle that the priests saw, that the priests of Israel witnessed. And I miss this every other time I read the book of Acts. But Acts tells us that after Jesus had resurrected and then ascended into heaven, as the good news of Jesus Christ is being preached and proclaimed through all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Christians evangelized to the priests. They preached the gospel to the priests who had seen what had happened in the temple, seen what had happened to that curtain. And Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Levites, the Levites saw the temple torn. And when they heard of who Jesus is as a true and greater temple, as a true and greater tabernacle, they said, this all makes sense. They became obedient to the faith. The highest class of religious Jews in Israel became Christian because the curtain was torn. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They gave their life to Christ. Brothers and sisters, Will you do the same? Will you do the same? Will you see Jesus as the greater tabernacle? Will you see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Will you see that Jesus is the means by which you and I can draw close to God? Don't let the presence of God just be lyrics in a song. Don't let the presence of God be something that you like long for or hope for is ambiguous and nebulous in your Christian life. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, would you receive God's presence? Would you receive his invitation, his approval, and his acceptance? And if you want to do this, friends, you and I, we have to come to an end of ourselves. We have to stop trying to save ourselves. We have to stop hating ourselves and disqualifying ourselves because we do that. Each Sunday we think, I can't sing today. I can't really worship freely or joyfully today. Who am I to lift my hands? Who am I to pray with fervor? I have been living such a wretched and a wayward life. Who am I to draw close to God? Who am I to have my words ascend to the heavens and fall upon the ears of our Father in heaven? Well, Jesus is telling us today, it's not about who you are. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is. Who is he? Who is he and what has he done? And brothers and sisters, by the power of his life, death, and resurrection, the curtain is torn in two. And you and I are granted access in. 
Would you receive it? Would you take him at his word? Would you enter? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace of the gospel. We thank you that you accept sinners who are broken and wayward. You accept sinners who are so forgetful and prone to wandering. You accept us in your house, in your tabernacle, in your presence. Father, I pray right now that the power and privilege of the gospel would be applied to every person here. That the Holy Spirit would comfort us, the Holy Spirit would lead us. May the Holy Spirit convict us that Jesus truly is the true tabernacle and it is through Christ we can enter into your presence. We thank you, O Lord, for, for loving us and providing all that we need to belong to you and experience you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.